All right. So um, welcome and thanks for joining us on this event on COVID-19 in the Americas. My name is Malu Gato and I'm Assistant Professor of Latin American Politics at the Institute of the Americas. And I'm joined today by Dr. Paolo Drino, uh, Professor Maxine Malinu, and Professor Ewan Morgan. The idea of this event was to provide a forum for sharing and discussing some of the reflections of our faculty about the ongoing global pandemic as well as to give students and prospective students the opportunity to ask questions that may be pertinent to their particular interests. Before we begin, I just wanted to say a few things about this session. First of all, I hope it all works according to plan. Uh, we had few people registered to participate today. And although Blackboard is supposed to be able to accommodate large events, this is really the first large event we're hosting in this platform. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say is that we will be recording this session and it will then be made available on our YouTube channel. Um, each speaker today will uh, provide a 10 minute overview of their thoughts. We will then open up for questions from you, the audience. Um, you can choose whether to see all four speakers on your screen. Uh, in fact, we have just, uh, before starting, uh, this has changed. So each speaker will just turn on, turn on their camera when they're speaking. And so you will be uh, essentially seeing each person uh, at a time. So no need to worry about that, actually. Um, find, uh, the other thing, just logistically speaking, um, to ensure that the session runs smoother, um, more smoothly, uh, we only the speakers will be able to share video and audio. So we ask that all audience questions and comments are shared through the chat function. So to access the chat window, you would have to click on the purple slash green button on the on the bottom right corner of your screens. Uh, that will take you to the to the chat. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask is that when you're asking a question, please specify if the question is for the roundtable in general or if, or if it's for a particular speaker. Um, so with that said, without further ado, let me just briefly introduce you to today's speakers and then they'll get started. So Paulo Drino is Associate Professor of Latin American History. His work investigates questions about labor in history and state formation racism and exclusion, and the social history of medicine, uh, expertise which he will be drawing upon for his comments on responses to COVID-19 in Latin America. Maxine Molyneux is professor of sociology at the Institute of the Americas. She has published quite extensively on Latin American development, policy, gender, law and politics, and the social effects of inequality, topics that she'll be reflecting upon today in the context of COVID-19, also in Latin America. Finally, Ewan Morgan is professor of U.S. history. He is an expert on modern U.S. Uh, political history and political economy with a focus on U.S. presidencies. And he'll draw on, on this expertise to discuss the dynamics of COVID-19 in the United States. So with that said, I will now turn off my camera and turn it on to Paolo Drino. Great. Um, thank you, Maru. Um... Well, let me let me preface my um, short presentation by uh, just clarifying uh, that I, I am a historian. I'm not a an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health specialist. So my um, comments, observations are those of someone who has worked on the history of public health 
in Latin America and specifically Peru, but um, whose expertise on the current pandemic is um, quite limited. So these are really the observations of someone who has just been following the news like uh, most of you. Um, so what I will talk about are basically three things. Uh, first of all, how well Latin American countries were prepared for the pandemic. Secondly, how well they have handled the pandemic so far. And thirdly, but very briefly, um, what are likely to be the economic and political legacies of the pandemic in the region. So how well prepared were they? Uh, generally, not very well. Uh, and that's not surprising because as we have seen, uh, with very few exceptions, few countries in the world were uh, well prepared. Even countries like uh, the UK that had um, undertaken uh, extensive preparations through the, something called the sickness exercise in the end were found wanting. Um, and by the lack of prepare, preparedness, I'm not referring uh, primarily to you know, the absence of stocks of PPE or the ICU capacity. Um, it's clear, I think, that responses to public health emergencies of this scale require a level of preparedness that um, ranges across public health infrastructure, but it also extends in to a kind of preparedness to develop economic and social responses, as well as political responses. And, and this is something that I think has been absent um, pretty much everywhere. Now, investment in public health in Latin America varies significantly. Uh, the average for the OECD is circa 9% of GDP. Uh, and perhaps some of you will be surprised to learn that in fact, in Latin America, several countries match that figure or exceed it. Uh, Cuba, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. Other countries such as Mexico, Peru, Guatemala, Bolivia are closer to 5%. Venezuela, uh, with all its uh, uh, recent problems, as a uh, uh, public health expenditure at just over 1% of GDP. So in terms of public expenditure as a percentage of GDP, a number of countries uh, were uh, at a level not, too, uh, not that different from um, the more industrialized countries. Um, looking at the dif differences within Latin America, however, it's not clear that those countries that had levels of investment that match the OECD levels were any better prepared for the pandemic than those that did not. And this sort of points to the fact that, of course, how much money you devote to public health matters, but it's clearly not the only issue that matters when it comes to um, addressing a pandemic. And I think that the US case, uh, which is the country where uh, expenditure in public health is the highest in the world, um, illustrates this. Now, moreover, the variation in the suggestion would uh, seem to suggest that while there is little doubt that um, many countries in Latin America experienced a kind of hollowing out of uh, state of the state in the context of the sort of neoliberal revolutions of the 70s, uh, 80s and onwards, it's not clear to me that uh, neoliberalism uh, by itself can uh, account for the lack of preparation. Um, after all, 
many of the problems in the delivery of public health in Latin America predate those neoliberal uh, revolution. So beyond public health capacity, in order to think about preparedness, it's probably useful to think about uh, what sometimes called the social determinants of health in the region and what they might tell us about the general susceptibility of the population. So here I'm thinking about factors such as poverty, inequality, access to basic services, and uh, etc. Now, one factor that could have uh, aided preparedness is, of course, the fact that many countries have recent experience of other epidemics. Peru experienced a major cholera epidemic in 1991. And of course, cholera continues to have an endemic uh, presence in the region. There are over a million cases of uh, cholera in, uh, uh, have accumulated since then in the region. Brazil, of course, had the Zika outbreak in 2016, and a number of neighboring countries have you know, uh, declared at the time an international public health uh, emergency. And there have been uh, in recent uh, in the recent year a number of uh, dengue outbreaks in different parts of the region, including uh, in Buenos Aires. Uh, some of you may have seen a map that circulated early on in this pandemic, which showed uh, the incidence of dengue and of COVID-19 in Buenos Aires, and it you know, it neatly mapped onto. Uh, the richer and poorer areas of Buenos Aires. So the richer areas had COVID-19, the poorer areas had dengue. But that's probably no longer the case, but it was at the start of the pandemic. Um, so one could expect countries that have experienced uh, recent epidemics perhaps to have developed capacity to deal with the current pandemic. And this is certainly an argument that's been made about some countries in Asia in particular uh, South Korea, Singapore, and, and so forth. However, there is little indication that this is the case in Latin America. Those countries that have experienced recent uh, uh, epidemics uh, have not shown to be any better prepared than those that didn't. Um, a final point I would underline here is that um, whereas overall, uh, I think most people would agree that biomedical capacity in the region is limited, some countries actually have a pretty strong biomedical research and investment uh, profile, including in the field of uh, the production of generic vaccines. Um, this is particularly the case of Brazil, also Cuba. And I think this is important because uh, if a vaccine is developed, Latin America may come to play a pretty important role in um, the industrial production of the vaccine. So turning to the second point, uh, how well have uh, Latin American countries handled the pandemic? Uh, again, I think here uh, one important point to make is that there is a lot of variation. Uh, and perhaps it's too early to say what amounts to success or uh, to failure. On the whole, most countries uh, reacted relatively quickly, even when the number of cases were very low and they introduced pretty severe lockdowns. This is the case certainly of Peru, of Chile, of Argentina. Brazil and Mexico, as we know, are clear outliers. Both Bolsonaro and AMLO uh, have um, you know, minimized the danger posed by, by the pandemic. And Bolsonaro in particular has handled the pandemic in uh, the worst possible manner. As we know, Brazil has no uh, Minister of Health at present. 
and the death toll in Brazil at over 30,000 is uh, increasing day by day, and this is very much, it seems to me, on Bolsonaro. Uh, of course, one major problem is that the quality of the data of the pandemic in Latin America is very uh, uncertain. Whether it accurately reflects what is happening in each country is, is not clear, and whether it allows us to make meaningful comparisons between, between countries is even less clear. Um, and of course, while there is little to suggest that you know, countries like Peru or Chile were wrong to uh, lock down when they did, it remains that the level of uh, cases and deaths is growing very significantly in uh, both countries. And this uh, seems to suggest that either the lockdowns were poorly implemented or were not fully implementable. Uh, by contrast, in Argentina and Uruguay, at least so far, there appears to have been a greater level of success in keeping the level, um, a greater degree of success in keeping infections and deaths relatively low. And so here the question really is whether this can be attributed to um, the particular way in which the lockdowns were uh, implemented or to the responses of the population is something that I think requires a great deal of scrutiny. Um, the capacity of people to uh, self-isolate at home in many Latin American countries is, is happening elsewhere is, I think, uh, limited by a number of factors. The variety, variations in size, diversity of how, households may prove quite important explaining relative rates of in, infection. So larger family groups living together may result in greater levels of uh, infection. And beyond the home, even in lockdown situations, the capacity to contain uh, infection may have been uh, very uh, limited uh, by the ability of the authorities to you know, effectively implement sanitary measures. And I know in Peru, for example, markets have been found to uh, have played a very uh, important role in, in, in infection. Um, a point I would uh, stress is that in all countries, the relative success or failures of these measures uh, appear to have mapped onto existing and indeed intersecting inequalities. In several countries in particular, exposure and vulnerability to the virus appears to map onto racialized inequalities, as indeed they do uh, in countries like the UK. A related issue is the question of the interplay of these public health responses uh, to the pandemic and policies of securitization, uh, which uh, typically impact in disproportionate ways on the poor and the marginalized. And conversely, in some cases, as in Brazil, the failure to provide security has led to uh, non-state actors uh, to intervene and impose lockdowns. Um, I see that uh, Malu is indicating that I'm uh, running out of time. So I, what I'll do, I have a few more things to say, but maybe they can come up in um, the Q&A session. But I do want to say something about the final point I want to address, which is the um, potential economic and political legacies. And here, really, I have more questions uh, than answers. Um, the economic impact, it's very difficult to know, but um, current estimates suggest that it will be very significant. I've seen calculations of uh, hit of between 6 and 14% of GDP. Of course, a lot will happen on uh, 
a lot will depend on what happens elsewhere in, in the world. The fate of the region is very much tied to what happens elsewhere. Um, whether the good or bad handling of the pandemic will produce particular political outcomes remains to be seen. Uh, Bolsonaro's disastrous handling seems to have resulted in a dip in the polls. By contrast, in Peru, Vizcarra seems to be uh, retaining a relatively high degree of approval. Whether he can uh, keep on to that remains to be seen. Um, and this kind of connects to a broader question, which I don't have an answer to, but uh, which is you know, whether the pandemic will kind of strengthen authoritarian or democratic uh, trends in the region. And I think this is very difficult to say. It will depend very much on the sort of economic and social tensions that emerge in what is likely to be a new phase of the pandemic and how successfully governments address them. And just to finish, the last point I would make is um, maybe a question that some of you have been asking yourselves is whether the pandemic will finally lead to Latin American countries investing more in public uh, health to uh, prevent similar episodes. And here I would simply say that um, historically what we find it's it's not so much epidemiological threats that have led to more investment in public health, but rather social and political ones. And so um, uh, I wouldn't uh, hold my breath. Okay, thank you. This crisis has exposed and magnified Latin America's underlying social deficits, which are putting precarious low-income populations at greater risk. Latin American societies, as Paolo mentioned, are among the most unequal in the world, and poverty affects on average up to 20% of the population. Added to this, most public welfare systems are fairly patchy. There's a high incidence of low paid and informal work and far from robust economies. The region's average growth rate last year was less than 1%, 0.1% of GDP to be exact. And according to the UN's economic agency, CEPAL, the pandemic will result in an average fall across the region of at least 5%. The future course of individual nations uh, in Latin America will, to a considerable extent, depend on wise governance and how much finance can be raised from capital markets and development finance institutions. Now, if we analyze Latin American societies through a gender lens, we can see that women make up the majority of those in precarious conditions. And in this pandemic, they've been particularly at risk in terms of income and health. Let's see why. A good part of the explanation uh, is gender norms, that is common binary beliefs about men and women. Simply put, the social roles that women are culturally assigned to tend to be less well paid and come with less social status and power. Uh, the care professions in which women predominate in all countries are a case in point. And we know that from all the media attention here to care homes and to the health sector in in general, that this is extremely valuable, essential work, but it is not rewarded as such. And that is even more the case in the Latin American region where wages are generally far lower. So one could say, make the general point that rewards to women, most women, that is of paid work in all occupations, tend to be less than to men. On top of this, women are expected to combine uh, paid work with 
uh, being principal carer in the home, as well as being responsible for all the tasks uh, to, to reproduce the family, that is to say cooking, shopping, cleaning, and so on. In Latin America, men still tend to adhere to ideas of male entitlement and generally regard this as women's work and demeaning. So in fact, do very little, if any of it. And of course, better off women will employ other women to do it at low rates of pay and very little security. Domestic workers account for 30% of female employment in Latin America on average, and only a small percentage have any social insurance. Uh, at the lower levels of the occupational structure, women's work tends to be the least secure and less well paid. The gender wage gap in Latin America has barely moved from between 25 to 40% across the region, with up to 60% of Latin Americans in formal work. Uh, we find women concentrated in the lower levels of the informal economy. They're the street vendors, the cleaners, the owners of, of tiny businesses. Um, and in formal work, they're in jobs like shop assistants. And in, in, in the industrial sector, they are the workers very often in value chain industries, for example, the maquilas in Central America and in Mexico. But even higher up the occupational ladder in the professions, women tend to occupy the lower state paid jobs, often on less secure contracts. And reports from across the region are showing that discrimination and sexual harassment is rife, including, I would say, in universities. Discrimination is intensified for those women who also suffer from racism and poor black and indigenous women are the majority of the poorest and suffer the widest health gaps with shorter life expectancies and untreated illnesses. The risks uh, to women of various kinds have been intensified as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. Most Latin American countries, as Paolo mentioned, impose lockdown conditions causing an economic shock, which has deprived many millions of informal sector and other workers, insecure workers in particular, of their regular income and their jobs. And the social safety net does not yet cover the newly impoverished. Housing conditions for poor people are crowded and poorly served with health and other services like clean water for washing hands and so forth. And uh, as everyone knows, social distancing is impossible for most of these households and communities. The situation is uh, even graver for the 4 million Venezuelan refugees and Colombia's huge numbers of displaced persons. So all of those uh, at-risk people are even more at risk of getting the infection and of course the economic shock. Women are not the only ones affected by the pandemic by any means and by or by the lockdown, um, but their place in society helps to explain some of their particular vulnerabilities. As primary carers and as the majority of frontline workers dealing with the pandemic, they face great health risks. As far as uh, health is concerned, most obviously as medical care is feminized, 70% of frontline staff uh, tend to be women, uh, these workers are seriously at risk of the virus, especially uh, where we're seeing reports that protective equipment is in very short supply or poor. And um, that is unfortunately uh, affecting uh, frontline staff in the medical profession, as indeed in other sectors. 
um, reports are coming in of a sharp rise in infections and deaths among medical staff for this reason, though some governments, Mexico and Brazil, for example, are not really publishing the data on this. There are two other serious risks to women and girls' health. NGOs are very worried that sexual and reproductive health services have been curtailed as resources are channeled into combating the virus, leaving many women and girls exposed to the risk of pregnancy complications, safe terminations, lack of contraception and STD advice and treatment. Latin America or some countries in Latin America have very high levels of HIV AIDS and in some countries high rates of age and underage pregnancy. So these deficits in sexual health provision are very serious, risking long-term effects on the people who are affected by that. Um, the other gendered health issue is, is uh, long-standing in Latin America, which is a region with high levels of gender-based violence, including feminicide or the murder of women, which is already at shocking levels in many Latin American countries, especially in the Northern Triangle, the Dominican Republic, Bolivia, Brazil, and Mexico. Reports uh, of violence in the home have also increased by up to 50% in most countries, and this is based on reports coming in, government reports coming into UN agencies that are monitoring this. So up, up by about 50% 50% in most countries as existing tensions in households are heightened by anxiety or by alcohol and victims have nowhere to escape to as refuges and other services are anyway few in number and many are closed uh, during lockdown. Colombia, for example, reported a rise in rapes and there were 12 murders of women in the first 16 days of lockdown. The Mexican government recently reported 26,000 cases of violence against women for the two months of the semi-lockdown in that country, though the president has last week dismissed this saying uh, that 90% of the calls were fake. In formal employment, the worry based on evidence elsewhere is that with a continuing economic crisis, many women workers will face more economic disruption. A survey carried out in Australia showed that it was women who already were facing pay cuts. Many of their jobs uh, uh, were going and um, this was particularly affecting uh, younger women. In Latin America, there is particular concern for young people as youth unemployment in Latin America is already at very high levels, hitting over 20% of those between the ages of 15 and 24. The economic shock and expected recession is bound to make that worse. This is a tragic uh, deprivation of opportunity, and we know that the effects of periods of unemployment for young people can set them back uh, in the longer term. This relates to the broader issue of poverty, which has grown significantly in Latin America over the last six years, with 140 million people estimated to be in poverty today by ECLAC, the UN Economic Agency. But the pandemic is expected to add another 35 million to this toll. And again, the majority of the very poorest are women and female headed households. Uh, and of course, the general lack of childcare options restrict many women from being unable to work. Thanks, Malu, one minute left. What is Latin America doing to respond to these problems? Well, with respect to poverty from the mid 1990s, Latin America did put down safety nets for households in extreme poverty and uh, 
that has been very important in the present phase, but of course it has not uh, as yet been adequately extended to um, encompass the new poor, those who are tipped into destitution without income support. Um, also, one has to say that there's not been a sufficient response to address the specific risks that women are facing in these extremely difficult times. And I just have two points, Marlu, to make and I'll finish. Um, the government committees dealing with the pandemic have been uh, widely criticized in all uh, or many regions, including in this country, but particularly also in Latin America, for lacking diversity, including a failure to represent women's interests and needs. Um, there are, however, some signs of, of uh, um, some progress that the UN agencies, particularly UN women, uh, are collaborating with governments and are generating policy proposals to alleviate the hardship that women are facing. So there are a patchwork of, of responses in place. And of course, it's the countries with active gender policies and women's lobbies that are uh, making progress here. Costa Rica, Mexico, Uruguay and Argentina can be instances having rolled out a raft policy commitments. So my last uh, kind of point to make is the critical issue for the next phase is that women's interests need attending to, their voices need to be heard to ensure that they help to shape the priorities of the recovery plans that are in the process of being drawn up. So thank you, I'll leave it there. Well, uh, I've got the job of speaking about one country, but it does happen to be the country which has had uh, uh, the worst experience in absolute terms with COVID-19. Uh, at the end of May, 1.7 million Americans were uh, affected by the disease and uh, 100,000 uh, of them had died of it. And we often see a statistic compare that 60,000 Americans died in the Vietnam War, 100,000 have died in the COVID crisis. But if you look at it in relative terms, uh, the United States is by no means uh, uh, the worst case uh, in terms of uh, COVID-19. Uh, per 1 million people in its population, it has had 301 deaths at the uh, end, by the end of May. And uh, that is a lower rate than France, Italy and Spain, and very, very much lower than we have in Britain, where the number is 559 deaths per million uh, population. So the United States is in the middle, basically, uh, of the pack insofar as the severity of the uh, crisis is concerned. And of course, uh, we uh, hear a lot about the United States because of the antics of President Trump. And of course, by, I would say by any objective standard, uh, Trump's performance as a crisis manager in this has been absolutely appalling. Initially, uh, failing to recognize the likely severity of the developing crisis, and more recently, uh, using the crisis for political gain through his uh, daily briefings and uh, tweets. However, uh, if the president has been uh, absent uh, uh, on duty, uh, the real stars in uh, government's response to the COVID crisis in the United States are actually the state governors and the city mayors. The United States has a thriving federal uh, system of federalism, and uh, mayors and governors have really stepped into the vacuum left by uh, 
uh, presidential leadership. And a number of uh, governors have enhanced their reputation uh, in uh, doing so. Uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer in uh, Michigan, uh, Governor Poe in New York, for example. Both of them are uh, Democrats, uh, but also Republican governors like uh, Mike DeWine in Ohio and uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland uh, have risen to the fore. Now, it's uh, the the fact that the states and localities are taking the lead is a good thing because they can act quickly, uh, they can act flexibly, they can respond to local conditions in a way that a uh, federal imposed lockdown couldn't do. One thing is clear uh, that the states and localities that went earliest in the lockdown have suffered least. If you take uh, California, for example, where the uh, pandemic spread more slowly than its initial uh, point in, uh, in the Northeast, California had time to prepare, and certain cities went into lockdown early. San Francisco, as a consequence, which is one of the earliest into lockdown, has had fewer than 100 deaths from the uh, uh, COVID disease. Compare that to New York, which has had 21,000 deaths. There are many variables to explain that, but one of them is that Mayor Bill Blasio was very slow to go into lockdown, overruling his uh, public health officials who wanted to go quicker uh, because he felt uh, it would destroy the economy of the city and would be very difficult to enforce. Now, if the United States has not really led the world in its uh, response, uh, in its uh, public health response to the uh, crisis, it has led the world in one way, and that is in the economic stimulus measures that the federal government has uh, enacted to try and cope with the economic effects of the crisis. In total, in global terms, uh, governments across the world have uh, provided some $9 trillion worth in aggregate of uh, fiscal uh, stimulus. And about a third of that is by the United States alone. Uh, in a very rare display of bipartisanship, the Democratic House and the Republican Senate uh, a couple of months ago enacted a massive $2.8 trillion stimulus bill um, go back to the financial crisis of 2008-9, the stimulus then was about 840 billion. This is almost, this is more than three times that level. Uh, money has been given to businesses, but money has also gone to individuals. Uh, a grant of uh, $1,200 to most adult Americans and unemployment insurance has also received a weekly supplement of $600, but that's only temporary. That unemployment uh, insurance supplement will come to an end at the start of July. I think it's fair to say that uh, Trump being president actually helped the speedy enactment of the stimulus. This is an election year and the Republicans uh, wanted to help Trump's re-election cause uh, by uh, making him appear to be the author of the stimulus. Uh, uh, Trump insisted on his signature being on the uh, notes that uh, went out in payment uh, or for, the, uh, uh, for individual Americans. 
However, there are limits. It's certainly if Hillary Clinton had been president, I doubt we would have had a Republican cooperation in delivering such a large stimulus. But there are limits of bipartisanship. The Democrats are already talking about the need for a second stimulus once the unemployment insurance supplement comes to an end in July. But the Republicans are not really interested in that because they know that the benefits will largely go to the blue states uh, where uh, COVID-19 has had most effect and unemployment is heaviest. We're beginning to see a a very considerable gap emerging between the parties now as to what to do next. And this is hardly surprising because in the red states, Uh, Their populations are less densely concentrated, particularly in the West, but also in the South. Uh, COVID-19 has had less effect uh, in these regions uh, compared to the uh, Northeast, Midwest and the Pacific Coast, where the Democrats are strongest, of course. So we're we're getting evidence that uh, uh, the COVID-19 crisis is beginning to widen the fault lines of uh, partisan polarization that pre-existed it in the United States. Now, what the, what is also emerging is that the worst sufferers from the crisis in the United States are those uh, who are at the bottom of the economic pile. There is is a strong class element and an even stronger racial element in the distribution uh, of uh, the disease and the deaths from it. If you take New York City, for example, the worst hit borough in New York City is the Bronx, which is the poorest borough, and the least hit borough in the city is Manhattan, which is the most affluent borough. And it's also significant, and in the case of New York, uh, the more affluent and better educated are able to leave the city and uh, decamp uh, because they can work remotely, uh, but um, certainly uh, the low-income citizens don't have that option, and most of them are Uh, occupied in uh, employment categories where you can't uh, work remotely anyway. So you have that uh, issue which is very much uh, a a clear factor in the current crisis, but by far the worst hit group have been African-Americans. Now, the infection rate in the United States for African-Americans from COVID-19 is approximately the same as that for whites. But if you contract the disease as an African-American, you have a two and a half times better chance of dying from it than from than as a white American. And one reason to this is that, uh, or the main reason to this, is that African-Americans uh, suffer from poor health, uh, low income, uh, poor housing conditions, and uh, have underlying uh, health problems which uh, are affected by the disease, underlying health problems like asthma, other respiratory diseases, um, poor diet, uh, obesity, and diabetes. So what is quite clear is that uh, 
the um, COVID-19 crisis has hit across class and racial lines uh, with those at the bottom of the pile uh, really the main sufferers from it, not exclusively, but by far disproportionately. Now, what I've said so far suggests that uh, COVID-19 has really uh, tended uh, to reflect uh, the nature of American uh, uh, politics and society in terms of the vitality of the federal system, uh, the um, uh, distribution of the disease uh, and its partisan uh, conferences and the, the, its effects on uh, the uh, bottom third of society. However, there is one uh, aspect in which the disease has uh, shown a new United States emerging, and that is that this is the first global crisis since 1945, uh, when the United States has failed to play a leading international role in tackling it. Indeed, you can say that uh, the United States has uh, um, weakened international coordination uh, against the pandemic through its uh, reduction of support for the World Health Organization. But the last thing I will say is that uh, the uh, pandemic has revealed a nationalist United States that has emerged under Trump and possibly spells the end of American internationalism. Thank you. You're well, actually, just three questions now for Paolo. Uh, Paolo will have to uh, leave very soon, and so I'll, I'll just uh, read up the questions for him to answer now. And so the first question is from George Glenn. I would like to ask uh, about your opinion on the unexpected rise of cases in Peru. You were the first to introduce lockdown measures up to a week before the UK, and the population in Lima was more than happy to adhere to the new rules, not so much in the periphery. However, over time, we have seen an unexpected mass increase of cases. In the last few days, this went up to almost 9,000 new cases on the 31st of May, and it currently sits sits at uh, about uh, 1,709, uh, uh, 1, uh, sorry, 1,709,000 um, confirmed cases and the lockdown has now been extended until the 30th of June. Why do you think this has happened? Why has the lockdown not worked? The repeated challenge of the authorities uh, that we have seen as of uh, late is in my view due to social challenges of, and the political culture um, of disrespect and disregard for authority. Would you agree? The second question from uh, Eliza Burgess is, how do you think the effects of the pandemic and Piñera and his government's handling of the crisis will affect the result of the national referendum for a new constitution in Chile to be held in October? And finally, uh, Alicia asks, could you comment on how you think social media has or will impact the public response in Latin America? We have already seen that politicians are using social media to promote propaganda, um, uh, such as Rafael Reyrey, a, a Peruvian politician, posted an image on Twitter stating that it was a, mar uh, a market uh, in Anda Huaylas. Uh, with people spaced out suggesting that other areas should learn from this example. Uh, however, it was later shown to be from Myanmar. Okay, so those are the questions for Paulo. 
Okay, thanks. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to leave in, in a minute, so I'll, I'll answer these uh, very quickly. Um, on the last question, the issue of social media, I mean, I think clearly um, social media and beyond that, um, the internet has become uh, a major protagonist in, in this pandemic um, uh, for good and for bad. Uh, I think, you know, in, 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 in many countries where people are in lockdown, the capacity to keep in touch with friends, family, uh, through uh, internet has given this uh, experience a completely different angle, which I think will be the subject of a lot of study uh, in in the future. But obviously, uh, social media can be uh, abused, exploited by uh, politicians who are out to um, gain some uh, influence. And so, uh, yes, the sharing of um, images that, that correspond to what is actually happening on the ground is happening in, in lots of contexts, and that's that's regrettable. Um, about the the question regards uh, regarding um, the Chilean uh, um, referendum, I, I I really don't don't know what the impact uh, will be. I from what I've been reading, um, Piñera's handling has uh, been um, highly criticised. And it sort of um, maps onto uh, general discontent with the government that had produced, as we saw, uh, a lot of um, uh, social unrest. Um, so I, I don't know what the outcome uh, will be, but clearly, um, you know, the situation right now in, in the context of the pandemic can't be dissociated from growing political polarization in Chile, which was occurring uh, before. And uh, to answer George's question about why um, the lockdown hasn't worked in Peru, uh, I mean, I, it's difficult to tell uh, whether this is due to disregard of authority. It could be, but I think it, it, it has to do with the fact that, you know, it's in, in many parts of Peru, it's very difficult to um, keep to the lockdown and uh, the social distancing, as Maxine uh, mentioned in her presentation, in uh, context of, uh, you know, unsanitary housing, etc., um, doesn't really address the, 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 the problems posed by um, the pandemic. So, um, you know, obviously, I think that the lockdown was, was necessary and uh, Viscara, I think, should take some credit for moving uh, so quickly, but um, you know there are kind of social uh, factors that I think um, militate against the effectiveness of the of the lockdown. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paulo, for uh, your presentation and for answering questions. Uh, if you have to go, uh, of course, uh, please do so. Uh, thanks again uh, a lot. So now we'll all go into questions for, um, there's a question for Iwan and then I'll let him turn back on his camera and microphone and then we'll go into the question for Maxine. And so the question for Iwan is, what impact do you think the amalgamation of economic and social political impacts of both the pandemic and the protests will have on the upcoming election in November? Well, it's very difficult to predict that as of now. Um, what I will say is that uh, Trump seems to be falling behind in the polls. Uh, whether this is a temporary slip 
or not. Uh, the most recent poll, the Monmouth poll, shows Biden 11 percentage points ahead nationally. And uh, uh, it's very difficult at this stage. Trump has a base which he will not fall beneath. Uh, uh, let's remember he won the election last time with 47% of the vote, 46-47% of the vote. Um, so whether the, the big question is whether the outbreak of um, the racial demonstrations that we've seen in the last week uh, will hurt Trump because uh, uh, he has taken a very tough line with them. Uh, uh, he's threatened to send in the military if the governors don't uh, uh, do their own law and order work. Now, that plays well to his white base. He had been hoping to eat into the black vote for the Democrats. I think that has now that strategy has now ended. But keep in mind that this is a an electoral college election, and it doesn't matter if you don't win a majority of the popular vote. I don't think Trump, if Trump wins the second term, I doubt he will get a majority of the popular vote. But he may yet squeak home with the same electoral college strategy that he used in 2016. And it remains to be seen, last outbreak of serious racial disorder in the United States back in the 1960s. In 1968 was also an election year. There is no doubt that the uh, racial uh, disturbances of that year helped put Richard Nixon in the White House. Whether they will work to Trump's benefit this time round remains to be seen because his performance as president in responding uh, to the disturbances will will be measured, whereas Nixon in 1968 uh, was able to play the role of opposition leader. Thank you so much, Iman. Um, I will now just go um, to Maxine for a question, actually. Uh, so if you could turn your camera and microphone back off again and Maxine back on. Uh, so the question is from Sarah Radcliffe, who asks, one gendered dynamic in Latin America has been attacks, including spitting on nurses and female health workers in public spaces. Uh, how do you explain this and what has been the reaction of women's movements? Is there a racialized dimension to this? Thank you, Sarah, for the question. There usually is a racial dimension to attacks. Um, and, you know, many women from uh, ethnic or colored communities are in those frontline services. And why are they being attacked? In part, it's uh, resentment against the lockdown uh, and by people who have been told that this is just something they don't have to worry about, that uh, this is all um, being spun. Uh, 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 there is, this is unfortunately in Latin America and some Latin American countries, you know, the issue of public health in this um, epidemic has been politicized, um, particularly by the right. And it's the forces of, of, of those formations that are actually leading these campaigns to discredit the right, to, sorry, to discredit um, people who are observing lockdown. And I think uh, and taking public precautions. And unfortunately, I think, you know, the, the nurses, nurses and frontline workers uh, come in, come in for those 
forms of abuse because they're telling people to put on their masks or to take care of themselves or to stand properly with due distance. And um, I, that is that is one uh, one possible way to see it. But it, it's uh, it's not across the whole region. Um, in some parts of Latin America, in Argentina, I, I've been seeing that uh, there's quite a lot of support for frontline workers, particularly through women's organizations and grassroots uh, organizations uh, led by women to support poor women and to get them through um, this terrible time. In fact, the women's movements across the region have been very active in lending community support, uh, including um, across the board um, in terms of immediately trying to stop the gaps in public services in sexual health and 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 reproduction so i mean i think uh, it's a it's a hidden army of of support for poor women in quite a few countries thank you maxine if you could actually just stay there for a bit because there is another question for you from alicia uh educational material detailing how to maintain good hygiene during the 1991 cholera epidemic primarily depicted women in the kitchen and house and subsequently responsible for maintaining a clean environment. Have you seen a difference in the kinds of images in such material in this epidemic? And because the virus spreads in a different way, do you expect women to have less blame and responsibility attributed to them this time? Uh, not a great deal of expectation, uh, I'm afraid, Elijah, but you know, there has been some uh, responsiveness to the need not to kind of reproduce the standard stereotypes, which have the effect of, you know, reinforcing the kind of expectation that women have to uh, carry out the burden of those uh, activities. There are some, um, particularly women's bureaus or, or ministries or uh, lobbies within governmental and non-governmental areas that have begun to to change the the nature of public campaigning but to be honest it's it's fairly small and and the actual effects i don't think are very great um despite the fact that so many women in latin america are now in work um public attitudes change very very slowly and the sad fact is that even among poor people there uh, uh, young people there are uh, very conventional expectations of uh, what um, women should be doing and including, uh, sadly, uh, that um, men can exert, you know, um, control over women uh, to, to a considerable degree. I mean, there's, there's a, a survey completed by Oxfam on young people showing the attitudes of young men have not changed that much. Um, with respect to, uh, you know, domestic violence, for example, and um, I would I would say that that's probably um, the case, you know, with regard to the conventional tasks associated with uh, women's role, women's role in these societies. Things are changing slightly. The evidence we have is a few percentage points, a few more men, you know, in certain social categories are doing a bit more, but it's a very very slow. Um, improvement, unfortunately. Thanks for the question. Thanks a lot, Maxine. We'll now go into a question for Ewan uh, from Etienne. And so the question is, you say that the global issue since 1975, that the US has not led the global effort. 
who would you say has sort of stepped up in this empty space? Um, and do you think that this will increase their global presence after the pandemic? Well, the, in the current situation, some countries have quite clearly uh, had strong leadership. Um, uh, probably the most successful uh, countries uh, uh, have been um, Germany, New Zealand, uh, Singapore, South Korea. Uh, but I'm not sure that uh, they uh, have really emerged as uh, uh, global players. They've been very successful national leaders. But uh, really, the only two countries uh, that could take a leading role in this are the United States and China. Now, their current relationship is at its lowest ebb since the uh, normalization of relations back in the early 1970s. And it's unlikely that uh, in the current COVID crisis, uh, they will get together. Trump, so long as Trump's in the White House, uh, the chances of the United States uh, uh, leading uh, a coordinated uh, international response to any crisis, uh, regardless of just the COVID crisis, is a matter of doubt. However, uh, we, if there is a Democrat in the White House, uh, if Biden wins the White House in 2020 and restores America's uh, habitual internationalism, uh, and if there is some kind of rapprochement with China, uh, then uh, we may see those two countries cooperating in bringing the world out of economic recession. And that will be the next big international uh, uh, situation we face. Uh, the United States at the moment has 15% unemployment. It could well go up to 20% by the end of this year. And we should remember that uh, in the depths of the Great Depression of the 1930s, unemployment stood at 25% of the labor force. So we're entering uh, areas uh, for the American economy that we haven't seen for a long time. The world today is different, of course, from the 1930s. The response in the 1930s was extremely nationalist, protectionist policies by various nations, which helped bring about the Second World War. We've got to hope today that uh, the leaders of the key countries in the world, beginning with the US and China, are able to see a way forward to cooperate in a way that does not lead to a new outburst of nationalism and protectionism. Uh, whether you're asking me what the if you're asking me what the prospects are, I'd say 50 50. Um, thank you. So there are no questions from the audience right now. And I'm going to ask a question that academics, including myself, tend to not enjoy very much answering. However, um, I'll do that because I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, and so I just wanted to to hear your thoughts on on this. And, and when I say that academics don't like to do it, it's because I'm going to ask you to speculate. And so I'm just wondering if you could speculate a little bit about 
what may be some of the behavioral um, or cultural changes that are prompted by the pandemic? And so in other words, um, this pandemic has quite, um, quite strongly transformed people's lives, uh, you know, the ways that we not only conduct our, our daily routines uh, within the households, but then also how people do business, uh, how politics works. And so in a lot of countries, including Brazil, um, you know, con congressional sessions have been taking place online. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, what do you think might be some of the interesting behavioral or cultural political legacies of, of this pandemic? Uh, and if there's anything in particular that you have been uh, thinking about that you, that, you know, we haven't discussed today. And so for instance, I've been thinking a lot about how gender relations potentially might change in Latin America after this pandemic. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just wondering, thinking about this pandemic as a critical juncture, what does this mean for behavioral or cultural or political changes? Um, I'll, I'll pass that on to Maxine and then uh, to, to Iwan. Thanks, Malu. That's a, a, such a great question. And it, I think it's one that a lot of people are discussing in terms of, can, is it imaginable that we should go back to where things were before after, you know, the explosion of, of sort of community cooperation um, in lots of areas? And, and I'm thinking, mostly here because I know exactly what's going on in even in my own environment here there's been a great deal of reaching out and and helping and a whole a whole issue now about how to sustain that beyond the kind of lockdown period is is what is in people's minds and to see how far you know those kinds of social relations can be reproduced sustained and nourished over time I think that's a very big question. I, I just don't know um, the answer to that. I think, um, you know, I, I don't see huge changes in gender relations. Maybe there are more. Um, there might be some. Um, there's certainly in this country, but we don't think that's necessarily happening in Latin America. You know, a great deal more value being given to um, the caring of people in the professions and and in general because people have become aware of how great the care deficit is and it is entirely possible that you know uh, future governments will have to spend more you know just to to um you know keep that going because the expectations of people of course are high in the case of latin america it's such a different situation because you do have quite in some countries at least quite strong you know community action anyway and i'm particularly thinking about women's movements as i mentioned before are, 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 i'm getting reports that there's a great deal of you know on the ground community activity now you know so it it pre-existed this um this pandemic it's almost impossible to say what will happen after because one of the great uh threats to all this is is the economic shock and you know, the likely longer term effects of that. And if there aren't resources to support, for example, um, feminist NGOs and, you know, civil society organizations, then there are reasons to worry that, um, that the sort of material sustainability of, of these um, new 
developments may be put at risk. But I'm hopeful that, you know, there has there have been lessons learned. There's a great deal of creative thinking going on. Um, and and certainly, you know, the discussions about we can't go back to how it was before, either in terms of economic and social relations, but more generally, you know, there may be knock-on consequences for the way that these societies, that people want to be governed. Um, and I, I, you know, given that we have a, a bad state at the moment of disastrous governance in, in many countries, you know, hopefully people will learn from that. Pache, what Ewan says about, you know, strong bases that support um, very uh, poor leadership. Thank you so much, Maxine. That was really fascinating and will help me think think about these well, uh, Ewan, I'll, I'll pass it along to you. Okay, well, uh, that's a tough question. And of course, when you're faced with a tough question, you always answer the question that you would like to have been asked. So I'm going to answer your question uh, by saying what I would like to see come uh, of the crisis of this legacy, whether it will as another matter. The first thing is that Americans have got to rethink their healthcare system. Uh, the United States spends 15% of GDP on healthcare. That's the highest level of any country in the world. Yet it still has a population which uh, doesn't have uh, at least two fifths of the population does not have adequate access to healthcare. The problem in the United States culturally with healthcare is that the healthcare system is there to turn a profit uh, for doctors, hospitals, etc. Now. What might come out of this crisis, this might be the uh, way the Democrats uh, approach the opportunity to uh, uh, call for the renewal of governmental activism is a new kind of healthcare system uh, which offers more equal uh, access to groups that have been hitherto discriminated against. And of course, this brings us to African Americans. Now, the Racial disturbances of the last week have highlighted to white Americans the situation uh, and the discriminations that African Americans still face. It's worth remembering that back in 1899, the great black sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about uh, the black folk of Philadelphia and he said that the greatest problem they face is inadequate health care. Every uh, that is the most fundamental issue that African Americans face in socioeconomic terms was his view. The same is true today. 121 years later, after um, Du Bois wrote that book, the same is true of Black Americans and healthcare today. And there has to be a change. Uh, whether there will be a change in the short term remains to be seen, but that is surely something that a nation like the United States has got to come to terms with uh, over the next year or two. Approaching the time for us to um, to wrap up the session, it's coming from Tom. I'm reading the question and I'm thinking, you know, there's so many parallels between U.S. and Brazil, but of course Brazil is on my mind all the time because. Following Brazilian politics and news is a full-time job that I don't get. 
paid for to do that as my full-time job. Um, but his question is, I wondered if any of the participants would like to comment on the knock-on effects of the U.S. response to the pandemic to the responses in Latin America. Uh, I don't know if uh, if you have anything to say about that, Yuan. If not, I'll, I'll pass it along to Maxine, and, and then I'll, I'll say a couple words about it as well. Sorry, who is supposed to be speaking? I think you are, Maxine. Oh, sorry. I asked if anyone had any thoughts on this, but if oh, not... Oh, sorry. I, uh, I'll, I'll add my thoughts when you two have uh, given yours. Okay. <laughs> well, well, Malu uh, obviously um, mentioned the... Uh, uh, the Latin American Trump, Bolsonaro, uh, there, there is almost a playbook, isn't there, that um, that uh, certain Latin American leaders are sort of reading from the Trump line. And I, I, apart from Bolsonaro, I have to say that um, Lopez Obrador of Mexico is also using some of the familiar tropes from, um, from the Trump regime in some of his rhetoric and attitudes towards the press, towards women's movements and so forth. So I must say, uh, yes, there are those uh, uh, issues happening. Uh, the other thing, actually, in terms of knock-on is, of course, the, um, the uh, US president's attitude towards the WHO and the cutting of funding to the WHO. On the other hand, you know, the US um, philanthropy and other forms of um, support to uh, the, uh, you know, health issues that surround the, the COVID um, investment and so forth in vaccines, you know, that level of um, flow of resources coming from the US is enormous. Uh, it's not coming via the presidency necessarily, um, but there is a, a significant amount of money still going into um, you know, international health uh, development. So, so there's some good and and quite a lot of bad too. Um, I'll just say some words of, of things that I think might be important to pay attention to. But I won't extend myself here. Um, the first thing is is there there are a lot of parallels between Trump's response to the pandemic in the U.S. and Bolsonaro's response to the pandemic in Brazil. Um, the first thing to note, though, is that uh, this relationship um, or the similarities in approach to policy and politics um, between Bolsonaro and Trump preceded the pandemic, right? And so this has been more or less of a continuation of Bolsonaro's um, uh, you know, similarly potentially imitating Trump in a lot of ways, um, you know, and, and as I was saying, not only in terms of policy responses, but also uh, his attitudes towards the media uh, and towards communication more broadly. Uh, one thing to note uh, is that Bolsonaro, I think, doubles down on things a lot more than Trump. And so we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the the uh, of, of policies in that regard or the lack of response of the federal government in, in a much stronger way uh, in Brazil. And Paulo mentioned the fact that not only did we go through to 
uh, ministers of health in Brazil during a pandemic, but that right now we actually don't have a minister of health, right? Um, and, and the other, I think, point to, well, two, two other points you mentioned that I think are worth following up on, on the similarities between Brazil and the U.S. And I recognize, Tom, that your question was about Latin America more broadly, but I will restrict my comments to what I know uh, a bit better, which is the Brazilian case. But the two things are, one, uh, about the heterogeneity of responses across subnational people. And so, um, you know, that's something that we're seeing both in the U.S. and uh, and Brazil. And of course, this this has, this is institutional uh, as well, right? And so as federal systems, we do have uh, subnational actors have a lot of power over policymaking. How uh, essentially mayors and governors have uh, not only been very important, but a lot of capital during uh, this crisis because of their leadership. And one of the things to keep in mind is that political ideology has been quite interesting to follow in that regard because we are also seeing uh, governors and mayors who previously quite strongly uh, supported Bolsonaro to actually go against him very explicitly uh, during the pandemic. And I think that the, the final thing that I wanted to mention is that beyond the pandemic, I think that the current moment, uh, political moment in the US is also ref reflecting quite strongly in Brazil, where uh, racial inequalities have been uh, rooted in Brazilian society since its inception. And now we are seeing how discussions about racism in the US uh, are really, you know, influencing and sparking this debate in Brazil. Um, and, you know, I think that there are some parallels there, uh, some very important differences because police brutality in Brazil, uh, in terms of absolute numbers, is is a lot even more uh, prevalent than in the U.S. Uh, if you just take, you know, uh, police brutality in Rio de Janeiro, you have higher numbers than in the U.S. And so that's, you know, that's for one place in Brazil. Um, but, you know, I think that there are some very important questions to be asked about what does this mean? What does it mean to have to think about or, or for this discussion to have been raised in Brazil now that it's going on in the U.S., right? And what does this say also about U.S. Uh, cultural influence in, in Latin American politics more broadly, in social debate, etc. But I'll leave it at that. Uh, I'll, I'll let Maxine say the last few words. Uh, oh, sorry, Ewan, say the last few words, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Well, what I'd say about Trump is this. Um, I think the 2020 election is building up to be the most important election the United States has probably had since Ronald Reagan became president in 1980. If Trump wins re-election, the situation is uh, going to be, uh, to say the least, problematic for a whole host of reasons. But the one thing that uh, we have to keep in mind about Trump, and I'm not sure if this applies to those people who look to imitate him and feed off him in Latin America, Trump holds office in the United States at a period of very significant demographic change. 
over the next 20 years, the United States will progress from being a majority white nation to being a polyglot nation where uh, whites no longer hold a uh, demographic uh, majority. The United, uh, the United States is changing. The population is becoming younger, more cosmopolitan, more ethnically diverse, more racially mixed. And that is something that uh, the effects of that we can look forward to. But for the moment, we have to go through the last stand of the old America in the person of Donald Trump. Um, thank you, Iwan, and thank you all so much for attending the event, participating with such great questions, and thank you to the speakers as well for joining me on this today. I'm very happy that it actually seems to all have worked out quite well, uh, better than I was expecting, actually. Uh, but anyways, thanks a lot. Maybe because this was such a good experience, maybe we might host some other ones in the same format. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Malu. Thanks.